This episode is part two of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to part one, back up one episode, check out Kamal Bob's keynote at the sixth annual To Code and Beyond at Cornell Tech. It's a fantastic talk, and it'll set you up right for this conversation with Kamal, where we sit down and I have him elaborate a little bit on some of the ideas from his talk. Before we get started with that, a quick plug. So, so on February 29th, uh, 2020, from 9 a.m. to 1.30 at Microsoft, we are going to have a Men of Color Lunch and Learn, um, New York City Men Teach, and See Us For All. Let's do it one more time. My name is Felix Alberto, Computer Science Education Manager for uh, the New York City Department of Education, serving the Bronx. Is it true there's going to be a taco bar at this thing? There is going to be a taco bar here. Um, and it's going to be delicious, uh -huh. right? If you love tacos, um, you know, just come, enjoy some of that free taco yeah. we're going to give out. We, I mean, have you ever been to a brunch and flew a drone? Uh, no. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> I would, I challenge anybody who has not eaten tacos under a drone. You they, need to be you here. You need to be here. If you, you are. Need, you need to be here. We're going to be honoring the four parents of game design on the 29th. Is that right? We're going to have the daughter of Jerry Lawson there. If you do not know who Jerry Lawson is, I'm not going to tell you right now. Enjoy delicious taco. Focus. In addition to tacos, <laughs> like if I'm in or around New York City on February 29th, that's this month of mm -hmm. the year 2020, Google's Jason Tigpen, the men of the NFL Alumni Association, uh, the Magic Cool Bus Justin Schaefer, right? And we're also going to have New York City men teach there, um, collaborating with us, making sure that, you know. Uh, Pat, push in, push in close to the mic and, and just tell us, first of all, quickly, um, what is New York City men teach? And, sure. and uh, tell us why you're excited about this day. So I'm extremely excited. What's going on, everybody? My name is Patrick Williamson. I'm a program manager with New York City Men Teach. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, New York City Men Teach is an initiative uh, with the Department of Education led by Mayor Bill de Blasio's Young Men's Initiative. Um, and it's really uh, New York City's largest recruitment, engagement, and retention initiative um, aimed at inspiring more men of color to become teachers in New York City. Um, and, you know, like through my experience here, we've had the amazing opportunity to partner with uh, Computer Science for All. And I mean, one of the things that really sticks with me about um, my first interactions with CS for All was, you know, um, I think it was last year at the, um, the, what was the main event? The, Oh, I think it was last year at YCS Matters mm -hmm. that I was asked the question, um, who is your favorite computer scientist of color? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even, you know, it's almost that idea of you can't be what you can't see because it's not as if I'm not an avid consumer of technology. Yeah. Um, it's more so that, you know, I'm almost conditioned to see myself as a consumer and not a producer. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, like this work with CS for All has really empowered me to understand that, no, we're we're kings and queens and coders. You know, we we play a part. Um, and, and if we're not at the helm of the innovation that's happening within computer science, we're stuck to, you know, um, be at the whim of someone else's narrative. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate the uh, the culturally responsive element and um, inclusivity that computer science for all comes with. Um, you know, I think it puts them above the rest. You yeah. Know? 
Did you ever eat tacos under a drone? Ooh, I can't say that I have. Because I heard it's going to be available. You know? On February 29th. Shh. So listen, um, you can't just walk in, right? This is like a pretty protected building. There is a registration page. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read it right now. It's... Um, bit.ly slash CS men of color. Um, what are these CS concepts? What is coding? What is programming? And you know, that's pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. I hear that all the time when people describe um, events put on by the New York City Department of Education and it's going to be dope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're saying... But this one is really... You, <laughs> this one is going to be dope. This one is going to be dope. If you've ever been to any of our um, CS for All events, mm -hmm. Um, you, you you know that it's it's a good time. Yeah. And if you haven't, you got to come check out the good time. Yeah. So you could uh, basically experience what other people are talking about, other teachers and just other members of your community. I'm pretty excited. What are we missing? Um, what are we missing? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. You want to hear more? Um, come check out. Check, come check out the day. Um, there's going to be a panel. We're going to be discussing what it is to be a man of color in the 21st century. Um, kind of giving out advice, um, you know, trying to break down um, or share different experiences that we all had, and what just makes us all, right, even though we come from different backgrounds, what makes us all um, men of color, mm -hmm. right? And why is that important, yeah. right? Yeah. So I appreciate um, Felix bringing that up in the sense of, you know, one of the supports that we all need as teachers of color, as men of color, um, is that sense of community and that sense of support. A lot of times we don't think of uh, having a community around you as like a necessary skill set or a necessary um, to to persevere in a space. We think of those individualistic categories more. Um, but one thing that, you know, I'm really excited about and, and like if you are invigorated by what you're hearing, you know, one of the best ways to support an initiative like CS for All is come out in community um, because your presence is enough in the space, right? Your experience is enough. You're an expert at that. Um, and like that's something that, you know, it, it, you don't see it on a standard test you don't see it on an assessment your ability to collaborate your ability to be in community with other folks um, and so I would say that's something that New York City Men Teach supports that CS for All supports and you know we're hoping that you can support too please register that was it right there that was it bit.ly slash CS Men of Color this is No Such Thing a podcast about learning in the digital age I'm Mark Lesser well, my name is Kamal Bob. I am, by profession, the Senior Director of the Constellation Center for Equity and Computing at Georgia Tech and the Global Lead for Diversity Research and Strategy at Google. Kamal, thank you for doing this. Um, hopefully folks who are listening to this also listen to your talk this morning, um, which... We have an amazing relationship with the folks at Cornell Tech, so we get to take some of these conversations from Dakota and Beyond and listeners of No Such Thing podcast uh, will have heard some of what you talked about earlier, plus what I put into the um, show notes for this show, which I'm hoping I can you'll you'll uh, give me the blessing to add some links from your talks at South by Southwest and and other spots. Um, I actually want to start with, um, I'm hoping, uh, a, a comfortable question for you, which is 
you got choked up this morning when we were talking about Karen King. Um, and I was hoping to share more given that we don't have, um, the heaviness of presenting to a large group that we could just talk a little bit about Karen King and honor her relationship to you and why, um, that was such an important relationship for you. And, um, what we're talking about here in a broader context is we're going to, you know, talk about STEM and learning and what we're really talking about when we talk about equity in the digital age. Um, who was Karen to you in relationship to some of these things that you're being invited to come out and talk about to fancy crowds like this? Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, the comfort or lack thereof uh, related to Karen is in part because she's a good friend of mine. And it turns out she's almost exactly a year older than I am. She discovered that she had uh, some kind of really aggressive cancer in September and she died on Christmas Eve. So the, the speed and the rapid deterioration of her health and ultimately death was shocking to everyone. Um, but she, uh, in this space that we operate in, uh, she was a, a program officer at the National Science Foundation in the Education and Human Resources Group uh, Directorate for years. Mm. She's a STEM, uh, specifically a math education person. So that's kind of her background. She's a math um, wizard herself, but also quite proficient in math education and the leadership and the pedagogy associated with that. And also obviously uh, probably related to questions that she'll subsequently ask uh, about culturally responsive pedagogy and what that means. And then also um, about the funding infrastructure. So the machine of the National Science Foundation, she was an expert in how that worked. So I was a rotator uh, program officer. So they have formal permanent federal uh, program officers. Mm. But a lot of the people who are program officers in the National Science Foundation are rotators. They're faculty coming from various institutions. So I was one of them. And when I came there, I uh, went there rather from Georgia Tech, she was one of the first people that I was told to go see. And she has served as a mentor, not only to me, but to several others on two fronts. One is about the structure of NSF and how it works. It's hard to understand that organization is very complicated. Uh, but also the relationship between its core premise. Uh, in my introduction to her, she talked about the NSF Act of 1950 and what that meant in terms of producing uh, research and expanding information at the frontier of knowledge and how that is directly applicable and, impl uh, and implicates the, the direction of life for principally for black people in terms of the context of the conversation she and I had so one part of it was that institutional knowledge about what was really going on there. And then the other is the work, the, the challenge of math reformation and what that means in the context of inequitable schools. Uh, and she was very direct in the words that she used. Mm. She, she didn't really kind of placate things. So she talked about black students and the underachievement that they are subject to because of things that happen to them as opposed to their cognitive abilities. And what I appreciated about her was that she did that. She was navigating between a very real uh, understanding of the world and the way that works and the educational infrastructure and the scale, size, and scope of that challenge 
relative to the boundaries of what we could do at NSF. And she did that not only for me, but for dozens of people who were coming through. So she was a very, very um, important part of the NSF machine. Probably the emotional part, as you'd imagine, is, be, you know, we just became good friends. And then also you're confronting your own mortality, like when your own friends are starting to die. Uh, it's rough. So that's her. I thought it was uh, in the context of this meeting, given what our objectives are, I think it was, and a lot of folks in there have gotten money from her or at least been guided by her wisdom. So I think it was important to acknowledge that. Yeah. It's her, you, you, the way you said it, <clears throat> have gotten money from her is, is kind of like when, when you're, when you're playing the NSF game, it is kind of how it happens. It's like, right. oh, I got money from Karen. Um, it is. I don't think people realize how critical folks at the NSF and their, um, the thinking that drives their decision-making is for the future of research and how that research then impacts what we're trying to do with the institution of whether it's K-12 or, or any of our, our education institutions. So while you were saying a lot of these people have gotten money from Karen, um, a lot of these people have been supported by Karen's thinking and her ideals. And um, anyway, it felt like a nice way to honor somebody who's done a lot for the research that a lot of these folks have been participating in. Um, they just uh, went through a nomination process for a new head of the NSF. I don't know how much you follow all of that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on what role you think the NSF can play in solving the hardest problems. What are those problems? If you, if you could um, say, answer these three questions to the NSF in the next decade, what would they be? <laughs> Um, no biggie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit biased here insofar as I, I've become a real believer in, um, the value of the National Science Foundation. Uh, I think that the, its historical origins matter. So this was born right after World War II, uh, Vannevar Bush and those guys who were involved in the scientific contributions to ultimately the victory uh, of the allies over the Nazis. Mm. Uh, and if we're thinking about it in that context, and that presentation is obviously simplistic and a bit romantic, but what it is at its root is the role of science in, in my estimation, the protection of democracy. And to that extent, the reason that NSF has, I think, a unique role in all of this is that the idea is that we're supposed to be promoting and supporting and advocating for the frontier of knowledge in scientific pursuit such that we have a better society. Uh, and I think the minutia and the machinery of it all gets confusing and, you know, people can be dismissive of mm -hmm. all of that. But I think particularly now, as they're choosing a new leader in the current environment that we're in, it's important to reflect on what these basic ideological principles are of our core institutions in this country. And that's one of them. I think that now uh, when we're dealing with the uncharted territory of what cyber security and cyber warfare means, mm -hmm. The implications are directly social. Uh, after 
the AAAS and NSF and some of the other government agencies were considering restricting access to certain kinds of scientific dif- disciplines for students coming from certain countries in the Middle East. That discussion has immediately come up again. Uh, because of fear of cyber warfare, for example, there are certain students that people in the U.S. policy infrastructure don't want to learn. Uh, they don't want them to have access to American higher education and cybersecurity in bioengineering in certain areas. That was big after September 11th. Uh, so the principle of what the National Science Foundation is about is something that I think we should hold as uh, kind of dear mm. to the relationship with our society and democracy. And I don't say that trivially. I think it's important for all of us periodically to reflect on that. So the leader of the NSF, particularly in this environment where science is being dismissed and there's this whole rise of anti-intellectualism and kind of critiquing elites and all of that and equating being educated and highly scientific with being elite, which is a false equivalence. But when there are uh, social actors, particularly in the executive branch, who are making decisions uninformed by the foundational information that science offers. Not only does it devalue the information and uh, rather the decisions that they're making because they're uninformed, but it also marginalizes science itself. And so in this particular moment, I think that the leader of the National Science Foundation is going to have an unusual burden and responsibility of being not just a custodian of scientific knowledge and frontiers, but an advocate for it, mm. and to make sure that they don't shirk that responsibility behind some mirage of being objective, because the time for that has passed. Like all of us now, irrespective of what we do, we have to be in this game confrontationally mm. to protect the core values of what a U.S. society is supposed to be. So for me, in terms of those three questions that you asked about, if I were interviewing the person, <laughs> one would be, what is their belief about the relationship between the scientific frontier and American democracy. Hmm. Two, how courageous will they be in defending the relationship that they articulate in question one? And third, given the fractious nature of the society itself, what do they intend to do to make sure that the scientific enterprise is something that all the U.S. citizens can actually participate in? So with those three, I think there's sufficient space to articulate not only just a vision of science, the machinery of the National Science Foundation, its relationship to the rest of the executive branch, but then also its responsibility to the citizenship as a whole. Yeah. I think that's, that's uh, beautiful. I hope not ambitious to think that they're asking those questions. Uh, I'm not on the search committee. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll guess at that. Um, I want to ask you about your role at Google. Um, this, some of the ideas you just shared about the role of science and for the sake of also tying in your background specifically, science and technology um, and democracy. Um, you're, you're a pretty outspoken guy um, about the things you believe about how those things connect 
And I like to believe that when Google hires someone like you um, to bring those ideas, it's, it is to bring those ideas to Google. Um, and when I first was introduced to the idea of you and I talking and then got to do a little, a little internet stalking of, of you and hear more about what you're about, um, and what your interests are, um, I started fantasizing in my head about, you know, so what's that, what's that boardroom at Google look like where Kamal is, um, I was starting to think of you as like chief uh, chief of real talk at Google, right? Um, but that's my idea about what you do. Like, tell us tell us what you were actually brought there in in this special role to do, and and um, I have follow ups to that because because I want to help you do that job um, and figure out how if you're not yet the chief real talk at Google, how do we get there? Um, <laughs> That's a funny way to put it. Um, well, the specific role that I have, um, the title is the Global Lead for Diversity Research and Strategy. But I was asked to come there to expand upon the work and the hypothesis that we have at Georgia Tech, which is that the uh, nature of the challenge facing computing education broadly is a structural one, and that these programmatic innovations that we tend to engage in are important, but they're insufficient to solve the larger problem. So that problem manifests itself in the K-12 space, as you well know, and that kind of that's part of the national dialogue. At the higher ed space, there are analogous challenges insofar as those students who are getting the kind of advanced computing education in the post-secondary space, there really aren't enough uh, not just for Google, but for this the sector more broadly mm. in the American context to fuel the nearly insatiable demand for people of those skills. And one of the charges that they offer to me is to um, essentially take that hypothe hypothesis of structural innovation and to try to help reconsider the relationship between Google specifically, but the sector more broadly, with higher ed, mm. uh, the, you know, the 10 or 15 schools that that sector typically hires from are the most elite schools. Uh, of course, the list of people who are entering into the Google workspace is very long, but make no mistake, the, that sector is elite and it's built on elite institutions. Uh, so in order to expand the capacity, we have to move beyond those 10 or 15 schools and think about what the broader higher ed capacity for computing is in the United States. So to the extent that they brought me in to do that, that's the specific charge that I have. And that's, it's not as unwieldy as it sounds, uh, but that's the gist of it. Mm -hmm. And with regards to the truth talking that you allude to, um, I think one of the other tasks that I've been asked to undertake is to challenge a bit of the the veracity of the arguments that we're actually making. Uh, so the public arguments, as you well know, are that diversity is important. Everybody says the same thing. You know, diverse teams are more productive, they're more innovative, they solve problems better, and so on. So that brochure yeah. answer to diversity and mm -hmm. 
the McKinsey guys and all those people have made millions of dollars writing the same reports mm-hmm. over and over to say the same thing. But at its root, with regards to the diversity aspect of what I do and am asked to consider, is this. Uh, in some ways, the logic of that argument doesn't really hold uh, because the reason that all of this is an issue is because of the homogeneity of that sector. It's principally white and Asian men as it has been from where it was born. So those schools, Berkeley, Stanford, etc. The population of Some those of schools. Some of them, your alma maters. Exactly. So I can tell you precisely who's there. <laughs> uh, and it's gotten even more homogenous over time. Uh, if the homogeneity is defined by white and Asian. And then there's certain kinds of Asians too. But nevertheless, we won't go down that rabbit hole right yet. But what I want to say though is that part of the task that was given to me is to expose and interrogate the veracity of that logic. So the logic says that we're after all this diversity because it's important. Okay, important for what? Well, the reports will tell you that it's important because these innovative teams and innovative companies and innovative workplaces make for more productive, profitable products. Utility and ubiquity of users, et cetera, et cetera, makes them more sensitive, sensitive, all those things. Okay. But the reality is that the power and influence and unprecedented valuation of these companies has happened without that diversity, mm. at least in the racial and ethnic definition of diversity. So the logic doesn't hold because these companies are successful by any measure, so much so that the big tech backlash is against their very success and power. Mm. So you can't then say that you have to have diversity to be successful right? because they're already successful. Yep. So part of the task for me is to, one, as a programmatic issue and tactical issue, try to reconsider and operationalize the problem of the interface between Google and higher ed in a different way for capacity building's sake. And then the other is to acknowledge the limited nature of the argument that we're actually using, which is a toggle between a business case argument, which is the one that I just outlined, and then the moral argument is that it's just the correct thing to do. Mm. And everybody knows that, but they typically kind of poo-poo that morality argument in, the, in deference to business. Yeah, Money's the bottom line. It gets to those crass mm. definitions. But ultimately, it has to be a choice. Mm. You have to choose to do it because you don't have to. There's no pain if we're not successful. I mean, you know, the, the brochure argument says that it's a value proposition of our company and we value all these different people and all of that. And it may or may not be true, but whether it manifests itself or not is asymmetric. If you fail to diversify, it doesn't mean that you fail to succeed. Therefore, you have to choose to diversify because it's not a mandate. And I think it's that simple. So you would, if you look at the headlines, certain headlines, Wall Street Journals, for example, or Forbes in the last six months, and you hear um, some of these headlines around, you know, uh, some of the the tightest sort of highest performing industry leadership in the country who um, sit on some of these sort of guiding bodies for industry talking about how the American, the, the, um, end game for the American corporation can no longer be just shareholder profits. Um, you would think that you're at, in this role at a special time. Cause there's a little, 
little extra juice here, like some momentum in the narrative where maybe we can actually hold folks to this. Um, but you started your talk this morning with a really important context, which is that in a lot of ways, we've been decade after decade um, kind of repeating this trend of pulling out, you know, th this intersection where industry is now interested in education is going to be the next reason for us to care about industry looking like humanity. Um, and we ignore it decade after decade, or we don't, we don't pay a serious enough attention to it that at the end of the day, we really get any traction. Do you feel like now's a special time? Do we have better momentum because of some special climate tension we have right now, whatever it is, or are we back in, you know, the seventies with, um, you know, this is just engineering all over again or, or wherever you want to put us. That's an interesting question. I do think that we're in a special time. I would, argue that the 70s and 80s and so on were the reconstruction era for our generation. So after coming out of civil rights, Martin Luther King killed 68. I was born in 72. That period of time was where there was a ramp up of what to do in the aftermath of all of that tension mm -hmm. and tumult that the country went through. And so all of those engineering efforts and equity efforts and all of that were born out of finally trying to pay attention to who are all these people that were now finally getting into the system. Yeah. And I think that was a very important period of time. <clears throat> the climax of which I think happened in the early 90s. So with regards to engineering, particularly, for example, the largest proportion of black students in undergraduate engineering programs in America happened in that, around that time, 1991, 92, something like that. It's never been as high before or since. So now here we are again. Uh, the, the computing stuff is going on apace. And what you're talking about is um, kind of in the business zeitgeist. They're saying that they don't want to have shareholder as being the, solely, uh, the sole points of accountability. Mm. I, I don't know uh, how deeply held those beliefs actually are because they're running against a system that's very, very deeply entrenched. But that doesn't mean that those things don't, aren't meaningful. What I do think is special about this particular time is that we're seeing, if you, if, if you would bear with me on the historical parallels, if you would concede that there's a little bit of accuracy in making the case that the Reconstruction era of our time was in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, that's a vague assertion, but if you would just align with that for a moment, then think what happened next. After that period of time when you saw the rise of the communities that were first entering into citizenship in the United States in the context of what we're talking about, it's principally black people, then came Jim Crow, the backlash against that hmm. presumed assertion of power of people who had erstwhile been disenfranchised. And here we are now in the beginning of the 20s of the 21st century, an enormous backlash coming against the presumed assertion of power and inclusion of people who had been erstwhile marginalized. Yeah. The pattern to me seems clear. I think that the, the kind of divisive discourse that we're in right now is obviously it's painful. It's disruptive to the ideals of uh, kind of the romantic versions of American virtue. 
including all of the ugliness that that uh, subsumes. But because of it, it is a special moment. And I do think that there are a lot of people, even in Google, which is subject to all kinds of criticism from every direction. Mm-hmm. But the people that I've subsequently met uh, having been there are in part very committed to understanding how to wield the power that they have and recognizing that the time that all of us has, are living in is volatile. It's clearly volatile and it's very dangerous. And so if we're thinking about, uh, you know, again, kind of lofty idealism in the, the practical uh, institutional behavior of citizenship in the service of American democracy, I do think we're at a special moment. And our challenge and task is to not be beholden by the patterns that we've already seen. Hmm. It doesn't mean that we'll be successful by any means. I'm not necessarily optimistic. I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, But I do think that this moment in time, one of the things that gives me unfortunately, a a bit of hope uh, (laughs) about it is I think that the way that the structure has played out, it is, it, it bends towards the viability of white communities in America. And to the extent that those communities are broadly under threat because of the diminishing power of the country itself, we'll do things differently Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're protected. And then ultimately we'll all benefit from that Mm. because the principal arguments about the things that need to happen to support individual communities are things that benefit everyone but historically we only do that uh, we only make that case for communities that have been disempowered but now that the you know the long-standing powerful uh, group that's been on top Mm. the kind of white american person their way of life is now being threatened And therefore, I think that the system itself will adjust to protect that. And that's our opportunity now to really reassert ourselves as a broad set of American people. Who are we in the world? What does it mean to be an American citizen? What does it mean to have democratic principles and values undergird all of the work that we do? How do we reconcile the relationship between these companies that are with historic? There's no historic precedent for companies being as powerful as these companies are right now. So how do we reconcile that? where you have individual American companies that are headquartered in the United States that are rivaling the power of some of the many allies that we have around the world on their own. That's something that we have to contemplate. And I think that that provides kind of the definition of a special moment uh, in historical time. Yeah. I have um, like a, like a two hour interview. I want to, I want to conduct here. So, um, but I can't, uh, cause we have a limited amount of time. I do want to land here though. Um, so not that long ago, Google released careers.google.com. I don't know if you've spent any time with it, but it's relevant for me in part because, uh, in my day job, I work with a, a group, um, NAF is, uh, known pretty widely as the National Academy Foundation and and is really focused on this um, idea of supporting young people in a transition from high school to what comes next um, and better connecting for all students what's happening academically with how that can serve them 
um, in work. And so one of the things we try to do is to make sure that young people are leaving high school having had a professional experience, right? And so in a place like, um, any, pick any, uh, Atlanta is a good one, um, any um, big urban or rural district, um, we have a hypothesis that if we can expose young people in responsible ways to the industry around them um, and give them a reason to get excited about Algebra 1 uh, or whatever else it is that they're doing, um, that it improves their chances. And, and I really do believe in that. You, in a talk that I, uh, I watched slowly and thoughtfully, I, I didn't, it didn't start this way. Usually how this, the homework happens for these conversations is somebody will send me a link and it's like, oh, let me, let me search up, uh, Kamal Bob. And, and so I happened on your spring South by Southwest in 2019 talk on Technopolis, which I'm going to link to in the show notes for this show. Um, but about five minutes in, it was like, okay, let me put away what I'm doing. I really want to be here. Um, so at a certain point you said, um, so, so careers.google is important to me in part because part of what I'm trying to do in my day job is figure out how do we help industry realize that they have a really important role in exposing more young people, not college young people, which they're used to sending for coffee, um, but even younger people uh, to help them s find ways of seeing themselves as part of industry at younger ages and particularly in communities of color where we we haven't lived up to um I, i'm a huge fan of it was referenced earlier today marion Wright edelman's you can't be what you can't see um you said in that talk in the spring um that in order for industry to win as they expand to all of these cities, that capacity needs to change. And I just want to talk about that. Um, I want to know what you meant by that. And I want to know how, if you and I were to sit here and redesign careers.google.com, um, how might we, how might we start to help industry realize how its capacity needs to change? Um, to get to this ideal that, that you were talking about in the spring? Um, well, I appreciate the reference. So you're dragging me back here a bit. I think it's probably important to define some terms, um, particularly what winning means. And I think there it's important to consider, in my view, what winning means in the expansion of these companies in the major urban centers, at least, in the United States, again, more caveats, uh, is that the, the social disruption that it causes, which we, as you know, uh, kind of gently refer to as gentrification, but those are dramatic, damaging disruptions of long-standing communities. The out-migration of people in these urban yeah. centers is extraordinary. So winning means that these companies can come in uh, and it's crass to talk about people as cogs in a demand, but 
they can meet their workforce needs uh, as humanly uh, stated as we can make that sound without the disruption that we have seen. So the capacity part of that statement is that the infrastructure of the cities has to be equally capable of producing people who are reflective of those that live in the city. I mean, it's not any novel. There's no novelty in that. But the challenge with all of that is that the the segregation that we're dealing with is something that we're not really willing to confront directly. Yes. So the exposure that, uh, and I have to confess, I'm not very familiar with how careers at Google works, mm-hmm. but I get the principle from what you said. <laughs> yeah. So the reality is that the depth of the segregation that we're dealing with is profound and it's racial segregation. Mm-hmm. It correlates obviously with socioeconomic standing. But if you think about what it was that led the Supreme Court to overrule the Topeka Board of Education in Brown versus Board of Education was that segregation on its principle is based on the inherent philosophy that the segregated schools, particularly those who are excluded, are unequal. And they're unequal in part because they have unequal experiences, they have unequal exposure, they have unequal resources, they have unequal expectations, they have unequal outcomes, obviously. So in this context, relative to what you're asking, A, we have to confront that. I think one of the central questions facing the country going forward is whether or not we're going to accept segregation as a de facto reality of American life. And if so, then we have to reorient our resources accordingly. And that's a question. It's not necessarily a desired outcome of mine, Mm. but I do think that the reality of the segregation that we're dealing with and how deeply entrenched it is, especially in schools, is one that raises the question about the efficacy of the resources that we're allocating to expose students to some kind of integrated utopia when we don't actually have it. Right. The other part of that is that when we're expecting students to come into this workforce, and now we're asking the culture of those workplaces to be culturally sensitive, to be pedagogically responsive, to be um, psychologically safe, all of those words that you keep hearing about. But let's say I'm a white person coming from Atlanta. Atlanta is the second most segregated city in America. Mm -hmm. I don't, despite the fact that the population of the city is 52% black, I can go to elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and have no black people in any of my classes. I can live in a neighborhood where I don't see any black people. I can go and eat in restaurants where I don't see them either. So I just kind of see them in passing. Let's say that I do that. I'm successful. I go to Georgia Tech. I study computer science. I get in a PhD program and all that. Let's say I do all those things. And now I come to a workplace and you're asking me to be culturally sensitive to people that I have no exposure to. And you're asking me to interact with them in ways that I don't understand. Mm. I don't have any personal friendships. I don't have any personal relationships. I don't have any personal experiences. But you're asking me to do this very difficult cognitive social experiment all of a sudden. Nobody's ever asked me to do that before. If we extrapolate from that and say, well, what does it mean to win for a corporation to expand its capacity in a particular city without confronting the reality of all of that? 
and being explicit and direct and saying what it is and acknowledging it, then we're just talking. And I don't say that that means we have an easy answer to it. But I do think, alluding now to the question that you asked previously, if this is a special moment, articulating the nature of that segregated life that the country is leading in the context of the expanded influence of the tech sector and it being one of the principal harbingers of this century for diversity, then we can do those two things together. And that is its its, its own challenge. But I think that we, you know, at risk of sounding corny, but I think that we're up to the task, at least of framing that problem carefully. We have enough tools, we have enough courageous people, and we have a moment of time where the risks are sufficiently high to catalyze people to try to act. Um, come out, I think it's a good a good spot for us to to um, man. It's the end of nothing, but this conversation. But um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Brown versus Board. It's 65 years this year. I hope it's an honor. Um, it's, it's certainly an honor to me to be having this conversation on the 65th anniversary. I'm, 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 um, I'm sad we're having this conversation 65 years from Brown v. Board, um, but I'm proud that we're having it and uh, that whether it's optimism or hope, we can we can debate separately, but I, I hope it's um, it's certainly an honor to me to be having it, and I hope it's an honor um, to your friend Karen, who put in a ton to some of these um, issues that her name and Brown and and all of these huge topics are coming together. Um, I'm smarter uh, for uh, this conversation, and I really appreciate your time. It's a real pleasure. It's been an honor. Uh, Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.